This episode is sponsored by Blinkist. There's no such thing as absolute quality, just relative quality compared to other things. So we need to factor this in for everything we choose. Let's say you go out and buy a house. You're not just trading money to buy a home, but you're also passing up opportunities to move overseas, rent into a better location in a different city and so forth. And economists call this opportunity cost. And this is a really big deal when it goes to reading because if you pick up a book, you spend 30 or 40 bucks on it and you trowel through 500, I'll just made up a word then, trowel, let's go with it, <laughs> go with it. 500, 600 pages of a book. It, the book might be a piece of shit, but you've invested so much time into it. So book selection is absolutely critical and that's why we recommend Blinkist. There's uh, actually already 15 million people who have recognized the opportunity cost, the recognize that Spending time learning isn't all uh, equal. Sometimes you can learn better things than others. Sometimes you can use your time more effectively. So 15 million people are already using Blinkist to broaden their knowledge. They've got 27 different nonfiction categories from self-improvement, personal growth, management, leadership, mindfulness, and happiness. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com forward slash what you will learn to start a free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash what you will learn to get 25% off and a free seven-day trial. Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of getting the love you want by Helen LaCalle Hunt and Harville Hendricks. For some people, the idea of a permanent commitment to a one partner for the rest of your life feels very old-fashioned. Any uh, Netflix doco you watch or any TV show, inevitably, there's some kind of uh, documentary about people opting out of the, the traditional way of doing things, a uh, bit of polyamory, a mm. bit of uh, non-traditional setups. So, it seems like this uh, idea of just one person for the rest of your life is becoming a bit old school. Yeah, it is uh, coming a bit of a movement. My eyes were um, pulled wide open when I used to be an Uber driver uh, for a bit of fun on the weekends. I remember just driving a lady home once and she just wanted me to go in, <laughs> go in, in inside with her and just sleep with her in front of the husband kind of oh, thing. In front of the husband? In front of with the husband. I think it's or called, with? I think it's called cuck. <laughs> cuck. <laughs> cuck old no, man. Anyway, no, that's... Uh, <laughs> I've seen a few videos of those before. I think <laughs> I didn't know the episode was going to start like this. But uh, anyway, I guess uh, that wasn't in the notes, but we've gone with it. Um, can you pull us out of this? <laughs> Actually, there was, I just, I just realised that probably wasn't the best uh, line to use either. But, no, um, no. <laughs> but uh, basically, um, people in relationships sometimes think, you know, when the going gets tough, then there's a there's a underlying problem with the person or with the relationship. And in the past, you know, 50, 60 years ago, people were thinking, how can we save this relationship? But now people are thinking, should we bother saving this relationship at all? Furthermore, young people, they're just kicking the can down the road about getting when they're going to get married. Uh, it used to be the average age was 23 for men and 21 for women. By 2017, it risen to 30 for men and 26 for women. So... Mate, you're just a bit below average, so by this <laughs> metric, you're doing a pretty good job getting <laughs> engaged. You're what, 28? Yeah, that's it. And uh, many curve. many people were just deciding not to marry at all. 
Yeah, and then we're, so we're seeing that everyone's doing it later and later and later, if at all. And then we're also seeing that uh, record high divorce rates of 50% in the US. But even more concerning is that the people who don't get divorced, there's a 75% unhappiness rate. So ironically, while we're getting married later, thinking that's going to help by giving us more time to pick the right person, we're not actually getting any happier. And in fact, things are getting worse. But there's two truths that are going to endure. Firstly, People everywhere, you're seeking lasting love. It's just this basic human need that we're, we just want this deep sense of connection and joy that floods uh, into us and this is what love can give us because when you're in love, you know, you're no longer alone. There's what, I don't know how many days we are alive, but if you've got the choice to be sleeping and waking up next to someone or not, you're probably going to be choosing waking up next to someone. Yeah, that's it. So, the first truth is that everybody is still seeking some kind of lasting love and the second truth is that when love flounders, people definitely experience this heartache uh, and even going all the way back to a few thousand years ago, Cleopatra and Mark Antony there was, uh, or Romeo and Juliet, they figured if love isn't the answer, then the next best answer is suicide. Obviously, that's a bit extreme but the truth here is that everybody still feels that pain and that heartache when they don't get the love that they want. Okay, so imagine a scenario, you're a middle-aged man who's a middle manager at a medium-sized company, you've had a hectic day at work but you've just finally put those finishing touches on that presentation to the big client with the multi-million dollar budget, you're about to leave and you're super excited, you're eager to share success with your wife when you get home. But just before you get home, you see a text pop up on the phone, obviously you're driving safely but you uh, pull over and check the text and it says, uh, your wife is texting you, she says, sorry, I've had a busy day, I'm stuck at work, I'm not going to be home for a couple of hours, you're going to have to make your own dinner tonight. And so, you're thinking, what, I'd counted on you being there, I want to walk in and share the success, I was hoping there'd be a nice uh, roast chicken sitting on the table that you'd spent a few hours making me because I'd had such an impressive day. But of course, you get home, some dodgy microwave meal, you're stewing in your own anger and disappointment that you're sitting there alone, you flick the TV on, your wife walks in, instead of the excitement you were hoping, you're just a bit pissed off so you just sit there staring at the TV and barely even utter a, a little grunt towards her. So this is obviously pretty stupid because she's got to go to work as well and if you look from a rational point of view, you wouldn't have this feeling of negativity towards her. But this is all happening outside your awareness. Uh, for the bloke, her absence triggered feelings that really came about from decades ago when he was being raised by his parents. For example, when he was in grade school, he might have stayed in after-day care program and was picked up by the mother just before dinner and envied the friends who went straight home at the end of the school day. And this kind of feeling of being neglected all the way back then is coming out now and manifesting itself within the relationship with the partner in really not a very productive way. So to your old brain, you're really experiencing the same sense of abandonment you felt when you were growing up. So when you think of childhood wounds, of course, you're going to be thinking of those kind of major things and unfortunately for too many people, this is the case. But even if you grew up in a nurturing environment, uh, there may still be some kind of uh, invisible scars there. So just because you think, oh, I didn't have any, you know, I didn't have drug addicts for parents or I didn't have some kind of, I wasn't getting whacked over the head every single day, so I'm fine, there's actually still going to be some, some, uh, some invisible scars from your childhood. Now, it could be very subtle. So think about it. You pop out into the world as a baby. You got this bliss as a newborn, but it doesn't really last forever because you're really an insatiable being. It's two things you need. You need your bit of food, but perhaps even more important is this physical craving you have to be held and nurtured as a baby. And if the caregivers are perceptive enough, 
uh, the baby will be fed, changed and held and have both of these cravings met. But if the parent isn't perceptive enough and can't figure out what's going wrong with the baby and withholds the attention from the baby, maybe uh, through the fear of spoiling her, which is pretty common now, I think, uh, letting the baby cry itself to sleep kind of thing, the baby might actually grow up thinking the world out there is not a safe place to be. It's not vibrant and joyful. It's actually dismal and gray. Now, uh, the bad news for parents is that there's uh, pretty much nothing you can do right. If you go to either extreme, it's going to be bad. If you, uh, if you neglect the child and, as you say, let them cry themselves to sleep and think that they'll, they'll be able to fend for themselves, that can do some long-term damage. But also, if you overly try to uh, coddle them then, and go too far in the other direction, then that's going to be bad as well. So, let's say if you grow up and you've got neglectful parents and they're just letting you cry yourself to sleep, they're never home uh, when you want them to be and you're not really getting this feeling of love and affection that you're really craving. They're just saying, go play with your toys, go away, I'm busy, I'm, I'm working, all that kind of stuff. The way this manifests itself in relationships later is that you're actually craving this physical attention that you never got as a child. So you're actually going to be on the clingy end of the spectrum, just like the young child who needed to sit on the parent's lap. On the other side, if your parents were intrusive, if they gave you too much love and attention, if they were uh, always always looking after you in the sense that they never gave you any space, they never let you fall over and scrape your knee or they never let you play in the dirt or they were always uh, meddling or they were always intruding, they were intrusive parents, then how this manifests in a relationship is subconsciously you're going to want space. You are always smothered. So when you get into a relationship, if your um, girlfriend or boyfriend says, do you want to come over and hang out uh, all weekend? You're going to think, no, I need a lot more space than that. I can't be just spending all time, all my time with someone. I need to have a bit of freedom and break out and do things for myself. So ironically, these two types of people attract themselves, the ones who are constantly needing space and the ones who are constantly needing affection and who are a bit clingy. So there's this infuriating game of push and pull that really never uh, leaves the other partner satisfied because they're doing the opposite of what they feel they need. So it seems somewhat counterintuitive. You might think you want space, but then you end up going for the fuser, the clingy person. And uh, what the authors are saying here is what we're really attracted to is ultimately somebody who resembles our, our caregivers. Uh, most people don't like to think that they're going to marry their parents, but of course, uh, the authors say that's what we inevitably do because we're looking to fill that, fill that void or replicate the type of life that we had when we were growing up. Yeah, this is pretty deep shit, isn't it? <laughs> it is deep shit. It really is. So, you know, if you had that feeling being neglected, you'd think rationally you would be going through the opposite feeling, be actually going back to that someone who's going to make you feel neglected again just so you start from that childhood place and then you can actually heal mm. the wounds that you had as a, as a, as a baby. When, a, when someone says, I'll never marry a drunk like my father, they might not end up marrying a drunk, but they'll, they'll marry someone who has those traits in the sense that they're, they're not really present with you or they sometimes uh, snap and they're angry for no reason. Or if someone says, I'll never marry a tyrant like my mother, they're, going, they're inevitably going to end up with someone who does like to have a lot of control and does like to be overbearing. Even though you say you're never going to do this, of course, that's, uh, that's just what we end up doing in the end. So what we're really looking for in a partner is someone to just to compliment us and make us feel whole uh, for the areas that really we don't feel like that uh, whole in this currently. Because if you look around in a lot of relationships, it is kind of complimentary. Uh, for me and Corey, for example, like very different. I'm an engineer and got this type of brain. She's a creative dancer. Pull me on the dance floor. 
I'm, a, I'm pretty good at dancing, I'd say, in, in certain genres. I've made up my <laughs> own um, I made up my own noodle dance where I, I go side to side and all around. Nice. And have you seen me pull out the noodle dance before? No, but I've seen you hitting it pretty hard at um, the Tony Robbins seminar we did back in 2016. <laughs> I remember you were dancing so hard that Tony literally went, yeah, follow this guy. He's got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he pointed right at me. But, um, you know, put some ballet point shoes on and then, uh, you know, I'm going to struggle. So... Yeah, we're all looking for that complementary traits. Mm. Yeah, so if you look at either look at your partner or look at other relationships, you know, around you, often you'll see one is talkative, whereas one is more introverted. One is sort of intuitive, and uh, the other is sort of more logical. Or in your case, Jonesy, one's a nice flowing dancer. One's a bit more stiff bodied. Obviously, hey. you've picked up the noodle thing, but uh, other than that, <laughs> maybe not so natural on the D floor. So, our brain's essentially got this information ingrained in it about what it's looking for and it's under one heading and it's the thing, the most responsible for my survival and they've coined this term, I think they coined this term, your imago and your romantic love is correlated to the degree to which the person you're going after matches your imago because this is the, it is odd that, you know, some people just connect and you fall in love with them straight away, some other people, um, oddly enough, just don't connect. And the ones you do, it's because of this imigo factor. So, the higher correlation you've got for the imigo factor, the I think more- it's imago. I only know that because I listened to Tim Ferriss in an episode yesterday where he literally, took, where he literally mentioned it. Now, you're saying you trust in Tim's pronunciation <laughs> over mine? I don't know. So, it's imigo. We'll go with that. <laughs> but if, the, if there's a higher correlation of it, you're going to be very passionate, which is good, but it's also going to be a lot more troubled because of these highs, ups and downs, the less imago correlation you've got, it's going to be less passionate and less troubled by those characterized by this closer match. When you first start a relationship, uh, a lot of interesting things kind of happen. There's this emotional subterfuge stage that occurs. So, for example, when I first met Corey, I'd invite her over for dinner and uh, I wanted to display my domestic talent, make it look like I'm a superstar, I'm a 10 in all these different categories. So I went to cook her this sausage ragu over creamy polenta. First time I ever cooked that and only time I've ever cooked something like to that that's extent. A, that's a risk. That's a risk. On top of that, I got a cleaner from Airtasker to take out, uh, making making sure everything was spotless clean, probably the cleanest the house has ever been in the whole time. And when she came around, uh, everything just looked perfect. Corey, on the other hand, when she did rock up, she'd have a $60 bottle of red and later she admitted this is the most she's ever spent on a on a bottle of booze. Um, she's never bought a bottle of red, anything like that. She also went to the hairdresser that day and uh, she looked absolutely mint. So, these very early stages for the first several months, all couples like us, you're trying to orchestrate your life so it looks like you're just basically invincible with very few emotional needs of your own. Yeah, I had a similar bit of subterfuge early on. I'd, uh, I'd read I wanted to read The Game by Neil Strauss, but I accidentally bought the wrong book, so I bought the rules of the game, uh, which was more, I guess, the actionable version, Uh, and so I was able to bust out a bit of uh, palm reading, a bit of ring reading, escalating the keynote, doing some of these these techniques to uh, 
bit of bit of subterfuge to make mm. out like I had this uh, this sort of emotional romantic side, which was definitely a definitely a big put on. Uh, and I remember early days doing some serenading with the guitar and stuff like that. That uh, I probably haven't done for the last eight and a half years <laughs> since then. <laughs> well, you so still last show, just a bit of salt and pepper, right? With a bit of guitar, a bit of Casanova. There was a little inside. bit, but there was a lot of subterfuge as well. I'm going to keep saying that word because I didn't know how to pronounce it before I had to Google it. But uh, yeah, plenty of subterfuge from my end. And this probably has a lot to do with this feeling of romantic love at the very start. It's this extraordinary experience. The partner you're with just looks absolutely perfect. There's nothing wrong with them whatsoever. And the first few weeks is really just a perfect world. Everyone's friendlier. You go outside, the barista knows your name all of a sudden. <laughs> the, 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 the lights on the way to work, they're just green the whole... Everything's just going hunky-dory the whole time. And there's this pristine beauty about the world. But, of course, inevitably, this initial honeymoon period comes to an end sooner or later. Our show's all sunny. He's not playing the guitar. <laughs> I'm not, the guitar's I'm ordering, starting to get uh, dusty. I'm, I'm ordering uh, baked beans on toast at dinner <laughs> a few months in. Suddenly, the uh, that facade starts to crack and... Uh, after it feels like you're sort of too far into it, you start to think, well, what's going on here? A bit of a rude awakening. Some of the true nature starts to come out. Some of the things that seem to be so perfect before suddenly aren't so perfect. Yeah, for example, a partner's tendency to be quiet and withdrawn at the start in the in love experience at the very start indicated a bit of a spiritual nature. Yeah. Now it's just starting to piss her <laughs> just off boring. a little bit, just <laughs> a bit boring. Or a partner's outgoing personality at the start is really refreshing but now it's making you feel a little bit invaded and it's a bit over you're the top. Like, man, you're just too loud. Just stop talking for a bit. What what initially attracted you is this uh, exotic or something different. What it, what initially attracted you that was something so unique is now just really starting to really tick you off. Yeah, so there's this growing discomfort about your partner's complementary traits um, and it's really starting to brew into a bit of a storm. Uh, the negative traits, the the ones that were denied in the emotional substitute, sub huge <laughs> phase of the relationship they're really starting to peek their head out and the period after that initial in love experience in quotation marks which i think that's how the five love languages phrase it is very different to the real love phase and this is where the real work begins for a relationship So, we've gone through a lot of the problems that you can face in relationships, a lot of those problems stemming from early childhood experiences that you either know about or in most cases, you're probably not even aware of. Uh, And we've also spoken about how the problems of how some people seem to magically change, they're not quite the person that you met on those first couple of dates and their real nature starts to pop out and even some of their things that they do that you think were so amazing are starting to piss you off. So, we're sort of at the point is like, okay, where do we go from here? Thankfully, Big Helen and Big Harvel, they've got uh, they've got some solutions for us. How can we actually become conscious of making this relationship work? The first thing we should do is make the commitment because as we opened with at the start of the episode, the old question of can this relationship be saved, it's really morphing into should this relationship be saved and millions of people and couples are just saying the answer is no. Um, obviously, divorce is really skyrocketing and ironically, it's kind of seen as a way of personal growth. I mean, breaking up with your partner, going out there and going through personal growth as opposed to the relationship being the vehicle for growth and change, which is the way it should be. Yeah, these authors are saying that you should make the commitment to stay together. They're almost saying that the 
divorce. Obviously, for some people, it's going to be necessary, but for many people, it's almost taking the easy way out in the sense that, okay, it's just too hard. We're not going to work at this. It's just easier to let it go. Whereas the authors are saying, no, you should actually make the commitment and try to make it work. You should be, rather than growing apart, you should be growing together. So there's the obvious obvious type of divorce where you design it and you separate completely. There's also another subtle type of divorce, which she calls the invisible divorce. And this is where relationships fall into this some, some kind of pattern where you're just essentially avoiding each other the whole time. Could be you're on Facebook the whole time, you're a sports junkie, you work that extra few hours after dinner, uh, you pick fights, you read magazines, you go to bars, anything just to avoid spending time with your partner. Yeah, in many cases, you just think, oh, these are my hobbies or these are just the things I like doing. Um, But deep down, really what you're doing is you're trying to fill any space possible so that you don't have to spend time with your partner. So, if you can become conscious of that and if you think, why am I actually watching this uh, game of uh, Big Bash 2020 cricket on a Wednesday night? Is it because I'm emotionally invested in this team or is it because I don't want to do the hard work of actually uh, opening up and talking to my partner instead? Yeah, and you probably know deep down if are you watching the Big Bash series because you really love it or is it just a way of uh, exiting from the relationship? So, this is the thing we need to look at. Find all the ways that you're trying to just avoid the relationship and these uh, deep intimate moments and really narrow the exits and rather than going for the Big Bash, you just sit down mm. and have a glass of wine, just look at them in the eye and perhaps okay. um, don't go down the path of getting a cuck. Uh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is another way of narrowing the exits. This is becoming popular. Is, apparently. We, need to, we need to cycle back. You said you, you got the invite. You never told us how that story ended up. Uh, it crossed my mind. <laughs> I won't lie, but I didn't do it. You didn't do it? Yeah. If, uh, it would have been if there was a lot more uh, beauty involved, um, I'd be all about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. I think I'm getting the picture. I think I'm picking up what you're putting down there. Uh, but so we need to narrow those exits. We're not saying um, bloody awkward, though. Mate. <laughs> anyway, we're not. We're not saying um, give up all your hobbies. We're not saying uh, quit the Tuesday night soccer indoor soccer team. We're not saying don't work hard. We're not saying uh, give up the art class that you do on the Saturday. But we, we, what we are saying is that if you realise that you're doing these not because you're genuinely wanting to do them, but if you become conscious that you're actually only doing them to fill time and to avoid spending time with your partner, that's when you need to narrow those exits. The second part of the conscious relationship is that the purpose and your purpose in the relationship is to help your partner and it's just not all about you. Because uh, you've made a commitment to stay together, you can work on your relationship and then you become allies, not enemies. Uh, you're basically a team to on a, on a journey of life, of growth and all sorts of challenges and adventures that life's going to throw at you. Yeah, the, t- the typical wedding vow of uh, till death do us part in sickness and health, you know, all these things that we say them, but uh, in obviously in over 50% of cases where d- the divorce rate is at record highs, people aren't honoring that. So, they're saying that you should honor that and work towards helping your partner out, recognizing that you've got your deep childhood wounds, they've got their deep childhood wounds. You need to work together to really build each other up as best as possible. So, in an unconscious relationship, you just assume that your partner's role is just take care of your needs. But in this conscious partnership, you're not thinking about yourself. You're diverting all of your energy into the imago of your partner and feel, figuring out how you can support their needs. <laughs> I still don't know what that is. What is the imago? Imago. I what it is. Oh, it's the, uh, 
it's the scripts that you've got from birth about who's the person who's going to fulfill your needs and what um, they actually need to do. There you go. And so, as a if you've got that, if you've got too much self-absorption, as you say, if you're unconscious and you're just thinking that if you either think everybody's the same as you or you're thinking that everybody else's job is to make you feel good, then you're going to be in a pretty shocking relationship. You need to turn that narcissism out uh, into empathy and realize that actually the other person, they've got some stuff going on as well and it should be your job to help them through their stuff, not just their job to help you. The third aspect of the conscious relationship is to remove all negativity. Now, there's this thing that we've got which is unconscious where your partner does something that's truly and authentically them but you might close them off or you might give them a bit of negativity because they show this part of their personality. In a way, you're kind of hammering them down into this mold of what you think they should be and how they should live their life to suit your needs but again, you need to remove all that, let the partner flourish in all the, uh, the ways that they need to. Obviously, in the emotional subterfuge stage, a lot of these little uh, weird quirks, they're not going to come out. They're going to come out a bit later and they might start pissing you off a little bit, but you need to just accept them. So, it's going to be a bit of an uncomfortable journey in the beginning to do something different, to do something challenging. You've, you're, if you're in a relationship, if you're in a couple, you've, your behavior is sort of grooved into, into what you've been doing for the however long you've been together. To break out of that is going to be tough at first, but it's going to be worth it in the end. You need to realize that you've got into this groove because of your early childhood wounds and because of the type of partner you've chosen, but you've got to realize that if you want to actually make a genuine commitment and make this thing work, then you're going to have to break out of that and do something different. We're going to be closing our exits. We're going to be stopping trying to find those escapes that we're doing to get away from our partner. Instead, we're going to renew the commitment to each other and we're going to remove negativity and deliberately become affirming so that you can create this safe and nurturing environment, which in the end is going to lead to much more open, much more effective communication and in the end, lead to a far better relationship. So, creating an intimate love relationship, it's not a very easy path. It's actually a a day-to-day struggle. Eventually, you're going to have rewired your brain into a new way in terms of like working with your partner, trying to help them and solve their problems. And over time, you're going to enter a completely new reality and it's a reality for sustained connection. Uh, You're going to be looking for ways to find time to spend together and not less and you'll begin to experience your differences of opinion as a creative tension, as an opportunity to go beyond your isolated points of view and grow together within your relationship. At the end of every month, we send out a, an email which is a recap of the month just gone where we give a bit of our brutal feedback, a bit of brutal honesty. We give the books a rating out of 10 where you can see what Adam Ashton thought of the book and you can see what Adam Jones thought of the book. And we also give you a teaser as to the four or five books that are coming up next. So if you want to be one of the first to know which episodes are coming up next, sign up to the email list where at the end of each month, you get a recap email. Head to whatyouwillearn.com slash email.